When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Neuroscience. This is a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm John Griffiths from the University of Toronto and Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And I'm co-host of this channel with a great crew, Joseph Friedman and Sophie Barwich, Chris Harris and Victoria Reedman. So today I'm talking to Douglas Fields. Dr. Fields is the Chief of the Nervous System Development and Plasticity Section at the US National Institutes of Health or NIH. He's a world expert on neuron glia interactions and the cellular mechanisms of memory. And he's particularly well known for his work on white matter plasticity, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Dr. Fields has over 150 scientific publications, including three popular books, The Other Brain from 2009, Why We Snap from 2015, and his new book, Electric Brain, which is what we'll be talking about today. So in Electric Brain, Dr. Fields surveys the history and current state of scientific understanding about the brain as an electrical organ and how the electrical activity of the brain relates to cognitive functioning and various clinical conditions. The book is stacked full of interesting scientific facts, particularly about EEG neurophysiology, but also neurofeedback and electromagnetic brain stimulation. And it's also, I would say, it's a very artfully composed book. And that it has a number of historical and autobiographical narratives that weave through across multiple chapters and, and really kind of pull together the um, scientific content in a, in a very readable way. And there's also some very poetic descriptions of uh, biological phenomena like EEG brainwaves, which are a lot of fun. So, Doug, welcome to New Books in Neuroscience. Well, thanks, John. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you too. Really looking forward to this conversation. So, so before we get into the, the book, what we'd like to have in our discussions is a bit of background on the author. So maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself, your um, personal background, but also your um, day job, if you like, your scientific research, and, and also how that's led you to writing the book. Sure. Um, yep, my day job is uh, I run a lab at the National Institutes of Health, and I'm interested in uh, development of the brain and how activity, how functional activity or experience regulates uh, development of the brain and plasticity of the brain. Um, so uh, that's been my longstanding area of research. Of course, this book is an outside activity. It's not, you know, uh, official duties of the NIH. But I also enjoy uh, communicating um, science to the general public. So that's why I, I try to write uh, articles uh, for magazines and, and I've written these three books. My background, um, well, I was uh, trained as a uh, marine biologist, and, um, but I was, uh, and I went to um, 
Moss Landing Marine Lab, got a master's there. My undergraduate was at Berkeley. And then uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography down in San Diego. And um, I was, however, working on nervous systems the whole time. I was working on uh, sharks and how they sense electric fields. Um, and one of my mentors was Theodore Bullock, who is a quite famous uh, neuroscientist who uh, made fundamental discoveries, started the Society of Neuroscience. Um, and his interest was brainwaves. <laughs> uh, I wasn't, so I sort of picked it up by osmosis from his interest. He was a comparative neuroanatomist. He'd go around the world and stick electrodes in every kind of animal's brain you could think of, from a sloth to a dolphin and learn about how the brain works by doing comparative anatomy. But he was very much interested in brain waves and, and, and thought these were the key to how the brain operates at a sophisticated level. Uh, I did uh, postdoc work at uh, Stanford and Yale, then I went to the NIH. So um, in terms of what got me to writing this book, um, my first book was uh, about glia. And glia are uh, brain cells that communicate without using electricity. Uh, and in my first book uh, for the general reader, uh, The Other Brain, I captured this moment in science where neuroscientists were on the cusp of a new understanding of how the brain works because neuroscientists had been so focused on neurons, they had excluded all the other cells in the brain. I, I can't think of another organ in the body where we would have tried to understand how it worked by looking at only one cell type in it. But that's what uh, neuroscience did for 100 years. And I tried to capture this uh, sense of uh, embarking on a new uh, area of neuroscience, a new understanding of the brain. What are glia? How do these cells communicate? How does this change our understanding of how the brain works? There's a whole new dimension. Um, that was, you know, very exciting time. Uh, and that field has now grown and is quite well accepted. But as part of doing that research, um, I went to Jena, Germany, which would become very uh, important in the book, The Electric Brain. And uh, I'll talk about this, I'm sure, in, in more detail. But I learned at that point about um, the first person to record human brain waves, and his name was Hans Berger. And um, it was a fascinating story because there was clearly a, a, an interesting backstory here. I mean, brain waves are perhaps the most important discovery, I would say, in, in neuroscience in the last hundred years. Um, that's my opinion, but uh, you know, it is a fundamental, important discovery. Yet you don't learn about it in in neuroscience classes in general, uh, and we don't know, you know, who, in general, we don't know who discovered them, uh, how that discovery came about. Um, why isn't this person's name uh, in all the textbooks? Why wasn't there a Nobel Prize? So I sensed that it was a very interesting story. And indeed, I found out that uh, by going there and looking at primary uh, records and going through notebooks, that the history that uh, was available at the time about Hans Berger was wrong. It, it was, you know, history is uh, a construct. And um, we'll get into this in detail, but I learned that, this, that, that the biographies that were written about this person were a whitewash. Um, and the real story was a lot more interesting. So that's what got me into, into writing this book. Um, and as you said, I, I write it in three parts, three different treatments. The first part is about the history. And, and that's where I, I just explored this mystery. How do, how, do we, how do we come up with uh, 
the idea that electromagnetic waves propagate out of a person's brain and you know who made that discovery what were they thinking and what did other people how did they react so that's that's part one and there i go around and, 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 and the world and and rely on primary sources of data to, to get this history in the second part of the book um, I talk about, all right, now we know there are brainwaves, but what are they? Because there's so much misinformation out there in the popular press about brainwaves. So in part two of the book, I explain what brainwaves are, how we measure them. And um, this is really fascinating because much like in my first book, we're on the cusp of a new understanding now about how the brain works because there is a big divide in neuroscience about brainwaves. Are they are they fundamental or are they just epiphenomenon? Um, you know, is electrical activity. Some people think that brain waves are the key to understanding how the brain works at its most sophisticated level. And there are other neuroscientists who think that uh, brain waves are not important; that they're just a result, like the noise of an automobile engine. So, in part two, I didn't write the book to give my impression. I, I uh, want the reader to experience how you know the excitement of discovery and how scientists go about trying to find the truth. So I, I do first-person reporting in this part of the book, go to my colleagues around the world, and they just sit down and talk to me about the work they're doing, and I'll let the reader then decide what they um, think about brainwaves. And then part three is nobody questions the importance of brainwaves, the practical importance. Um, and that's where I, I talk about then how uh, brainwaves can be used for diagnosis and treatment and uh, whatnot. So, boy, I went on a long time there. Sorry, John. No, no, that's great. I mean, and this was this is what I would have uh, got to in a in a, a little bit more elaborated intro is uh, these these three components of the book and 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 what you're doing in each of those and and broadly speaking, that's what I'd like to do over the next hour or so as we as we discuss this a little bit further is maybe do well roughly a third on each of these, but certainly kicking off a little bit more with the history. Um, I would add that the uh, the the report the kind of reportage uh, style that you, you have. At various points, is um, as I was indicating earlier on, it it adds it really adds to the kind of readability and the enjoyment of the book. There's a um, there's a passage you have somewhere in the middle where it's kind of about three pages of stream of thought, I think, while you're doing a resting EEG, <laughs> um, and uh, it's it's hilarious to read actually. Um, and and another thing I wanted to actually just just give you the opportunity to share with us before we um, hit the history. Um, per se is another um, part of the uh, the autobiographical or the the kind of process um, the 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 reporting process that you're going through, which is you were describing an incident that you had up on a mountain, and it's really kind of action packed scene. So why don't you just kind of run through us that that little event on the um, on the snowy slopes, and then we'll we'll get back to the early 1900s. Oh uh, well, um, you know, in my historical uh, investigations, uh, I, I began interested in uh, Angelo Moso. Um, is that that's what you're interested in? Yeah, or, yeah. Um, okay, um, so Angelo Moso had uh, was one of the pioneers who, who was trying to study a physical property of the brain. Um, and he was studying blood flow in the brain. And he was interested in high altitude mountaineering um, and how the brain swells and adapts to altitude. Um, I had read a, a new paper that had come out by um, Dr. 
uh, Fayed in uh, Zaragoza, and he had done MRIs of uh, climbers who'd come down from Mount Everest. And out of 13 climbers, all of them but one had brain damage, structural brain damage. Um, now, we know that you can damage your brain at high altitude uh, by mountaineering, the, the lack of oxygen. Uh, but none of these uh, climbers had experienced any kind of adverse uh, events, and they weren't aware that they had damaged the brain. So, um, you know, he, he then went and looked at but people had climbed lesser peaks and, and found the same sort of thing. Now, this very much interested me because I'm a climber as well as a neuroscientist. So I pitched Outside Magazine that I'd get my brain scanned and then go climb a mountain and um, get it scanned again and prove that uh, you can climb safely. See, the problem is people don't take the time to acclimatize. It takes a long time. People will, these days, will hire a guide to bag a summit in a weekend, and um, the body will adapt, but it takes a long time. So that's, the Outside Magazine loved it, so I went to do that. Um, I got the commission to do that article, and then I ran into a roadblock. Nobody would scan my brain. Um, because apparently there's some ethical problem with um, putting a person in a situation where they could damage themselves just because it'd be interesting to study the damage. So I couldn't get anybody to scan my brain. Uh, I contacted uh, Fayed in uh, Zaragoza and said, hey, will you do it? He said, sure, come on over after we close the clinic. We'll scan your brain and go out to dinner. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, they eat dinner at 10 o'clock over there. Um, so I, I went and climbed uh, Mount Rainier with my son. I didn't have a before, but I did have an after image. Um, so uh, the way that ties into the, um, the book on electric brain is, you know, we're so used today with MRI and EEG and all these devices we have for studying how the brain works. But, you know, in the 1800s, none of that existed, the, not even the concept of, you know, what was psychic phenomena? What is consciousness? What, how does the brain work? That was thought to be mysterious. And the, and the idea that there would be a physical basis for mental function was revolutionary. And so uh, Angelo Mosso in Turin, I also visited his lab, was one of the first person, people to try to measure physical changes in the brain. And he was looking at blood flow. And if you think about it, that's fundamentally how MRI works. But that's, uh, those investigations are what inspired Hans Berger to begin to study uh, possibility that electrical uh, waves were coming out of his patient's brain. He, he did studies on patients in a mental hospital. Um, and the first thing he did was, was actually just repeat what Mosel had done to measure this change in, in blood flow in the brain. Yeah, great, great. So um, Berger, I mean, definitely... As as you pointed out, Berger features heavily in the uh, the sometimes it's like the fir the first historical data point on EEG, right? It's, um, say okay, Berger discovered the EEG in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. I would like to come back to the the point that you described earlier, which is how the history maybe um, hasn't quite um, given the complete picture in your view, but just a a little bit earlier than Berger, right? So what what you don't hear so often it is the um the scene around well around the time of moso around the the late 1900s um but in the in terms of measuring electrical activity you know, bioelectricity but bioelectricity in the brain so there's Caton, there's uh, what beck um there's a few guys who were um doing some pioneering work there really the 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 first measurements of 
electrical brain activity, the discovery of um, of brain waves. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that that first phase of um, the creation of electrophysiology. Sure. Um, so Hans Berger is recognized uh, as the first person to record human brain waves, but uh, brain waves were discovered in animals uh, earlier, and that work is what inspired Berger, but um, tends to be lost or, or not reported, and in part because this is the uh, you know the 1800s and and uh, scientific findings were not broadcast very well. There were not there weren't as many journals and societies, so discoveries would be made and lost. Um, so um, Polish neuroscientist Adolf Beck uh, recorded brainwaves in animals in 1891. Now, you know, in 1891, you don't have electrical amplifiers. You don't have electricity, uh, electronic devices. So the way that he did this research is fascinating and very ingenious. Um, and he, you know, he, he got it right. Uh, looking at new phenomena he'd never seen before. He... Um, used a string galvanometer, which is like a, a string with a, a compass needle on the end. That, and as you know, if you put a, a magnet <clears throat> near a, a compass needle, it'll deviate. So he um, used this kind of device and put a mirror on that, uh, in effect, needle, magnetic needle. And so that when uh, put electrodes on the brain, exposed brain of, of experimental animals, and um, if there was a current flowing through these electrodes from the brain, it would cause just a little deflection of this needle. And um, he bounced light off of this onto, the, onto a scale. So there's no measurements in volts or millivolts or microvolts. It's, it's, it's uh, millimeters or degrees of deflection. Um, yet he got it all right. He saw that there were these surprising things is that he saw that there's ongoing spontaneous activity in the brain. It isn't just, um, you know, like a doorbell, you, you know, stimulus response. There's this ongoing activity. And this activity is oscillatory; comes at different frequencies. So that was that was Beck. Um, it's also very interesting because there's a contrast between Berger and Beck. Hans Berger, the reason uh, he's kind of obscured is because his his background was whitewashed. Uh, he committed suicide in 1941. He did all his experiments on mental patients in Jena, Germany. Um, and the uh, biographies were indicating that Berger committed suicide because he was persecuted by the Nazis um, or in protest, and he hung himself in the, uh, in the, in the hospital where he worked. Um, that just didn't seem to ring true. I mean, you know, Nazis, during the rise of Nazis in the 1930s, you know, the eugenics movement began in mental hospitals. And euthanasia, forced sterilization, that all began in mental hospitals as a way to, they called it, you know, racial uh, hygiene, um, to eliminate the uh, inferiors. Or, uh, so, you know, homosexuals, uh, physical, mental patients, uh, people with physical disabilities. And, you know, it was a vicious time. So I couldn't imagine that this person, Hans Berger, would rise. He became the director of this hospital and be tolerated. And so uh, what I found, uh, based on actually uh, Suzanne Zimmerman, who was, who was a medical historian, and she just uncovered these records after the fall of the uh, wall, Berlin Wall, um, that Hans Berger was a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, and he oversaw forced sterilization of all the patients. And I went through the records with her, and it's just heartbreaking to hear, to read these uh 
trials where, uh, you know, a, a husband is pleading not to sterilize his wife who has slight mental retardation and alcoholic, the same thing. So uh, what happened is at the end of World War uh, II, of course, um, a lot of the people stayed on at the university and they had been Nazis or Nazi sympathizers before the war. And to stay on, their backgrounds got washed, whitewashed. So that was fascinating. Um, you know, example of, of history, um, accuracy, like anything else, you have to go to primary data. But the reason I, I, I flipped to that is because um, Adolf Beck was uh, working in Poland and he was a Jew. He was taken prisoner in World War I um, by the Russians. And after two years, he pleaded to Pavlov, famous uh, neuroscientist, uh, famous for the uh, conditioned reflex in dogs, to uh, win his release. And he was released finally from prison. But then that's World War One. Then World War Two comes along, and um, he's a, he's the Germans are now coming in and uh, set up concentration camps. And uh, as they came to take back to the concentration camp, he took a cyanide pill and killed himself rather than have his life taken. Uh, so you have this strange juxtaposition of Nazis and society and science being mixed together. But it turns out that Beck wasn't actually the first person to record brainwaves. I traveled all around the world to, to you know, investigate and find primary sources and had no idea that this town that's 30 minutes from me called Catonsville, and that's where the airport is that I go <laughs> to all the time, Catonsville was established by the Caton family in the 1700s, and Richard Caton from Liverpool, England, was the first person to record brainwaves. He published his findings in a uh, British medical journal. He lectured on these findings in 1875. Now, 1875, there's no electricity running through anything. You know, the, the gas lamps, horse-drawn buggies, and in fact, what electricity is, is still not clear at this time. So this was a real pioneer. He published his findings and it was forgotten. Berger didn't know about it. Uh, Beck didn't know about it. Um, and that's what I find fascinating today, that probably today somebody has published new results in Science Magazine or some other, probably not Science, probably an obscure magazine, and people don't get it. It's 50 years ahead of people's thinking. And that's, that's, uh, was the fascinating thing with Richard Caton. He was a physician. He uh, was the first person to record brain waves. He got it all right. Um, oscillations were obvious. And, um, and, um, but being 50 years ahead of his time, nobody understood it. They weren't prepared to hear it. Um, you know, this is, a, this, this is what I think is, is a really important lesson in, in science. Yeah, the, the the history there is really fascinating, and and it it's funny because I feel like today almost there's almost the, a danger of a similar thing, but for the, for a completely different reason. In that, um, as you were saying, Caton uh, and and Beck, uh, you know, particularly Beck, right? They um, they they made discoveries, but they just because the communication systems weren't in place, um, and the the it took a long time for the information to diffuse and for the discoveries to be, um, you know, propagated to where they would have been most useful. These days, it's almost like the opposite is there's so much information propagation and so much, uh, you know, generation of knowledge that you're drowned 
in uh, information. So there could well be, uh, <laughs> you know, discoveries going on left, right, and center that just aren't aren't being kind of picked up because there's just so much going on. Uh, obviously, that's a better situation than the former, but it's a it's a curious kind of parallel. So coming no, up, I agree with yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Uh, but and it's certainly true. But I would also say that, and this also reflects the other brain. The real barrier was conceptual. People are not prepared to accept these ideas. And this is the story of EEG. Um, after all of these uh, findings on EEG were presented, scientific community dismissed it. And that's the same thing that happened with glia. Um, we need to think this is a time when people were trying to understand the brain with a reductionist approach, right? They were studying individual neurons, Ramon and Cajal, um, you know, trying to find different parts of the cerebral cortex that has specific functions. Now, here you have some scientist coming along who puts two electrodes on the whole head of a person and claims to be able to find some insight about how the brain works just didn't resonate. Uh, it was thought to be ridiculous. And also in Caton's time, science was not you know, these were physicians. They didn't make any money by doing science. And so there was no immediate practical medical uh, application. Of course, 100 years later, it would be, you know, critical. But uh, so it's these conceptual barriers um, that I think are, are really important. Uh, and, uh, you know, si that's the way science works. It goes through fads and and uh, it's it's not linear. Yeah, yeah. And and as you as you indicated as well, so taking taking through the history a little bit further and bringing it a little bit closer up to to present day so uh, you know, Berger was not appreciated in his time and um wasn't happy as a result um amongst other things um even even though Adrian uh, and co had uh, you know estab established his discovery communicated some of his findings to the to the broader world so that there was there was awareness or uptake but really the the real establishment of EEG, I say clinical neurophysiology, as what it's, it's generally called, was in the 1950s and 1960s. Right, that's when it's when um, uh, clinical applications started to come through. Some key discoveries with things like uh, sleep and um, and and use cases in the context of epilepsy. So, so you have. In the latter half of the 20th century, the emergence of a clinical discipline that's that's using brainwaves in in constructive ways, and and we're you know now now that's I mean it's still growing and we're still doing discoveries, but that 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 got laid down some somewhere around say the between the 50s and the 70s. Do you, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of the of the evolution post Berger of the um, yeah, clinical okay. neurophysiology. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, um, this field was pretty much dismissed. Uh, a lot of people thought it was just artifact. Um, and then um, there was sort of, it seemed sort of pseudoscience to some. Um, but um, when Adrian published in his paper, and he just replicated uh, Berger's work and said, yeah, the, these brain waves, he called them Berger waves, Berger waves, um, exist. But he mocked them implicitly in his publication by having a recording of uh, his own brain waves, the Nobel Prize winning brain waves, and brain waves from a, a water beetle, uh, and showing that they did the same thing when you uh, open and close the eyes. And so uh, he never studied them again. 
But actually, Herbert Jasper and Wilder Penfield were uh, the key people in bringing brainwaves uh, into the clinical practice. And, you know, Jasper uh, did his work in Montreal. Um, and Penfield was this famous neurosurgeon. Um, Jasper actually learned, uh, you know, after Adrian uh, publicized his work, he actually went and visited Berger. He, um, and he repeated the experiments. And, you know, he published a paper in Science, which is really just repeating something that had already been published, you know, for decades, but uh, it so had so much of an impact. It was now time for people to appreciate it that it warranted being in the, published in this premier journal. Um, Penfield was doubtful that measuring electrical activity on the scalp could be helpful clinically um, in, for example, localizing the uh, origin of a seizure. Of course, you know, today we know that's when we think of brainwaves, that's what probably what most people think of. And Jasper uh, predicted that he could pinpoint where the seizure, where the, uh, the seizure was taking place to guide the surgery. And uh, that turned out to be correct. Uh, and uh, this really did lead to an understanding of uh, the importance of, of brainwaves clinically. But that's now expanded well beyond, uh, you know, EEG to today, we're really at a threshold of beginning to be able to um, interrogate the brain using the mechanism of operation that is used by um, by monitoring and manipulating the electrical activity in the brain. And it's way beyond, you know, EEG uh, you being used for epilepsy. Um, we can uh, tell what kind of brain you have, what kind of things you're good at and uh, bad at, whether you're good at uh, arithmetic or good at reading or not. Um, it can um, reveal not only neurological disorders, but psychiatric disorders. And we can treat those disorders now by manipulating electrical activity. So that's what's really exciting now is that um, we're, we're, you know, very much like when you go to a doctor, uh, he or she'll take an analysis of your blood and do a chemical test in your blood and then tell you, you know, you have high cholesterol, you're at risk of having a stroke, heart attack, and then you can take action. That's what we're now uh, being able to do, at least in the experimental world. It's not yet in clinical practice, but this is, this is uh, completely um, established in the experimental literature to be able to diagnose uh, psychiatric conditions and treat them by direct interrogation and manipulation of electrical activity in the brain. And that's what, that's, what's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, I'd like to come to the, some, some of these application questions in a little bit, but maybe I think we have a little bit more work to do now. If, if we can say we've, we've done, I think a nice little job on the, on the history um, to, spell out a little bit more of the actual neurobiology. So um, so we've been talking about brainwaves, we've been talking about electrical activity. Um, why don't you give us the uh, uh, elevator pitch version of what we're, what we're talking about um, biologically, what's generating these signals that we're seeing when we're talking about EEG and brainwaves? Right. So... Um... Everyone understands now that neurons work by uh, sending electrical impulses, electrical signals. Um, but when these neurons fire in circuits together in populations, carrying out information processing in the brain, this creates a collective 
uh, response, an electric field that can be measured in the tissue around these neurons. And this electric field will propagate through the scalp so that you can put electrodes on the scalp and detect uh, this activity, electrical activity, primarily in the cerebral cortex, uh, right underneath the skull. And um, so it's, it, the analogy that's often used is it's like an applause meter you, or like in a stadium, you can hear the roar of the crowd in the stadium and tell a lot about what's going on uh, on the field, but you can't hear the individual conversations. So if you stick an electrode into an individual neuron, you can study its spiking, but you can't study how it's really uh, operating in, in a large network sense. With EEG, electrodes on the scalp, you pick up this combined activity of neurons working together in populations. And the interesting thing is that this activity is oscillatory. Um, and so you know, oscillations occur in all kinds of things in nature, and it turns out that electrical activity in the brain is oscillatory. Um, and it looks much like the stock market, uh, an, an electrical recording of the brain with an EEG. And one way to begin to study that is to just uh, look at the different frequencies of activity. If you look at the stock market, there are oscillations that are really rapid, the day traders, then there's, uh, you know, quarterly traders and long-term traders and all these waves of activity in the stock market, price activity are superimposed and happening at the same time. Same thing is true for EEG. So one of the things that uh, the neuroscientists do to quantify and study this activity is to break it down into its component frequency bands. And this is where we get, uh, I'm sure people have heard alpha, uh, delta, theta, beta, gamma, these are the different frequency bands of oscillations. So deltas are very slow oscillations, like a cycle per second, almost like the heartbeat of activity. We get these in deep sleep, uh, for example. Um, alpha waves are the famous ones uh, associated with uh, uh, opening and closing your eyes. This is the first wave that Hans Berger uh, studied. Um, and then the gamma waves are really high frequency. They're, they're at the frequencies uh, of electrical oscill oscillations and AC circuits in North America and higher, you know, 60, 100 hertz. So these oscillations are all going on at the same time. Um, by analyzing the amount of power in these different frequency bands, you can get a lot of insight into how the brain works and it, it, it also uh, its state of arousal. Um, and sensory processing. The other way we analyze these is by looking at coherence. So you can have a wave in one part of the brain and uh, look at another part of the brain and see if these two parts of the brain are doing the same thing. Are they in synchrony? Um, and uh, that leads to the idea that brain waves are maybe coupling together activity across distant parts of the brain in the same way that uh, you have waves interact destructively and constructively in any other phenomenon. This could unite populations of neurons in the brain. For example, in memory, you pull up a memory and it comes rich assortment of place, time, smells, uh, emotions. All of those things are in different parts of the brain. How do they all come together to make a memory? So the idea is that these waves of activity are coupling together populations of neurons in different parts of the brain to bring together this coherent experience. Um, so uh, you can also do ratios of the different power and uh, bands. For example, the theta power to beta power ratio is approved uh, for diagnosis of ADHD. 
in patients. Uh, so um, those, that, those are some of the ways that brainwaves are used and some ways that they're analyzed. Great. That's a fun, that's absolutely perfect. The, uh, the, the quick summary that I was uh, angling for there. And, um, and you touched on a number of important things. One, one of which I think is uh, like really key in, in some of the biggest questions that people are focusing on in neuroscience today, which is how does the brain code information? And you, you actually lay out, which I hadn't actually seen before. It's not something I've seen um, often enough to remember at least is describing three different three different types of ha- uh, coding uh, or the way that brain, the brain is doing coding. The first two are familiar as what we, we normally call spike coding and rate coding. Um, and then the third one that you introduce in that little schema is phase coding, which is dependent on oscillations and, and um, phenomena like coherence that allows uh, allows pairs of neurons or groups of ensembles of neurons to communicate with each other through their oscillatory patterns. Um, you so one of the things that you you mentioned the 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 power ratios um, and and just the the frequency bands there in general. So um, this leads nicely into one of the main themes that you you touch on at a number of points and I. I I, I got the impression that it was a, a subject that you were particularly interested in because it came back a number of times, which is neurofeedback. Um, and so and one, one of the, you know, this neurofeedback isn't just one thing. There's lots of things that fall under that umbrella term. But one of the broad classes of types of uh, neurofeedback type activities is to try, is to give people a, um, a mechanism, a feedback mechanism, for example, like a sound or a visual visual information to allow them to learn to control the um, power in different frequency bands. So you, you, you covered, you touched this uh, at various points in the book, and you also described the process of visiting um, a, a clinic or a kind of, I guess it's a, it was a commercial company, but it was a, a place where they do neurofeedback assessments. So could you, could you spell out that a little bit more for us? Yeah, sure. Um, Let me lay the foundation. Uh, I think I've left out something. Uh, In terms of coding, the spike coding is you you have a frequency of action potentials will code intensity of light. That's one aspect of coding. The other is, well, it matters whether a neuron fires at the crest of a brainwave or the trough. Um, So now the phase is important. So we have, that's a much more sophisticated idea. So these are not these, these are multiple coding mechanisms that work together. They're not contradictory. But how would that work? What, what is not being said here is that a brainwave is an oscillation in the electrical field around neurons, and neurons fire based upon the difference in voltage inside and outside the neuron. So we, we learn about that in school, um, you know, that you depolarize a neuron, put current into it or fire a synapse, and that'll make it fire. But it's the difference inside and outside of the electric potential in a neuron. So you can make a neuron fire just as easily by changing the field outside. And that's what an oscillation is doing. So if you um, are at the peak or at the trough uh, of the brainwave, you will either inhibit or promote the firing of the neuron. And now you begin to see how brainwaves could actually control um, Coupling, not only coupling, but be another mechanism of, of coding. And finally, I'd like to say that, um, you know, a lot of the nonsense we read in the 
uh, newspapers can give the impression that, you know, or, you know, Black Mirror, we can upload your brain <laughs> to the internet or something, you know, or brain computer interfaces being sophisticated and, and, and we're, you know, a great threat to society of brainwashing or whatever. We don't, scientists don't understand how the brain codes information. That's exciting at the level that would be required, for example, to implant a thought or extract a thought. We have very rudimentary understanding uh, of how that works. And um, there are a lot of scientists around the world working on that, and we're making better study, uh, progress all the time. In terms of neurofeedback, well, so this, this goes to the heart of the question of uh, how do you utilize this information that brain waves are uh, diagnostic and also can be used therapeutically? You can manipulate brain waves with uh, electrodes. Uh, you can beam magnetic pulses a number of ways. We'll probably talk about later. Um, rhythmic, even rhythmic uh, visual stimulation will modulate brain waves. Um, and but one of the obvious ones was neurofeedback, and I was always curious about that. Neurofeedback has this kind of a checkered <laughs> reputation from the you know 1960s uh, when you know you could buy a device and so anybody could do neurofeedback um, and that kind of clouds uh, clouds the issue a little bit when you have scientists doing it with very sophisticated instruments and then you have just anybody can do it um, and you get this fringe science mixed in so I was very interested in that. Uh, brain and neurofeedback, because this is a way for the brain to modulate its own uh, information processing. If if you if brain waves are important in in uh, psychological, neurological, computational uh, functions in the brain, then if we modulate those brain waves, we can change those things without drugs. And you know the treatments we have for mental illness like schizophrenia, you know, ECT for depression, which is electroshock therapy, you know, they're life-saving, but they're way too blunt. They have a lot of drawbacks and we need much better ways to, um, to treat uh, uh, mental illnesses. And, you know, even drugs, you take a SSRI, uh, a drug for depression or it affects every cell in the body that has receptors for that drug, and you get all kinds of, of uh, you know, side effects. So, if we could actually manipulate the important aspect of how the brain works, manipulate its electrical activity, that is a very exciting therapeutic approach, and that's what's going on in in experimental labs around the world. So, neurofeedback. Um, yeah, I went I went to the Virginia Neurofeedback Center um, and met Jessica Ewer and uh, Robin Bernhard, and um, they agreed to record my brain waves and let me experience neurofeedback. And I, I did it. It was fascinating because um, I'd never done it before. And I had this idea that, oh, it's going to be like, you know, a video game. You get some feedback and you're trying to rack up points when you make your brainwaves go the right way. It wasn't like that at all. Let me just back up a little bit and say that um, the, the neurofeedback uh, center, the first thing they do is they record people's brainwaves while they sit do, doing nothing. And they their clients are people with uh, PTSD, uh, mental illnesses of various kinds, psychological, emotional problems. They've probably tried everything else and, and still uh, are suffering. And then they will go and try this neurofeedback. <clears throat> and uh, there's nothing to lose because it's, it's, it's pretty harmless and it's being very effective. So the first thing they do is record brainwaves while this person sits doing nothing. And then they have that analyzed. 
the first finding is that a huge fraction of their cases, these people with mental conditions, neurologists looking at those EEGs saw that there was actually abnormal physical abnormalities and and that these people were having micro seizures. You know, you don't have to have a seizure and lose consciousness. You can have a one circuit in the brain seizing and that circuit doesn't work. So that is so important because, you know, that will guide medicine. It may may be that a doctor would be giving these people some sort of a a drug to treat their anxiety and that drug could actually be promoting seizures. So that was number one. Secondly, they they then compare, assuming there are no neurological problems in the EEG, fortunately there weren't in mine, uh, they will then um, compare those to a database, a large database of, of uh, so-called normal population and look at deviations um, with the idea that whatever is causing this uh, complaint by, may be reflected in deviations from normal in the brain waves. So they might find, oh, this person has a low um, theta wave at one power at one part of the brain. That part of the brain makes perfect sense for the complaints that the, these people have. So then they bring them, them back and they have them, uh, they record the brain waves and then they have a computer monitoring the brain wave power and, and, and frequencies. Um, and when it shifts in the right direction, say, for example, to boost the theta wave activity in this part of the brain, you get a positive tone. You get a, a tone feedback uh, as a reward and people will act, the brain will use this information and correct its uh, brainwave activity that's deviating from normal. And that's the therapeutic approach. So again, I, I knew it was that you would get this feedback, the bell ringing <laughs> in my case. And I thought, you know that I needed to do something conscious, but it's completely unconscious. You don't, you don't, uh, try to do anything. Your brain figures out, uh, what's going on and it will shift. And it was fascinating. I, I, I recorded my thoughts <clears throat> and, um, um, give some insight into, you know, at least the way my brain works and, um, and what it was like to do, to do neurofeedback. <clears throat> and at the end of that, uh, I did shift my brainwave power in the way that they wanted to have it change. So it works. In, uh, so it was a fascinating experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also in my, this is the part where you talk about stream of consciousness. Um, in, in that part, I, I, I just relate my thoughts. And it was important that I not edit that. That's a transcript. That's data. Those are actually my thoughts. I had to battle with my editors on that, but <clears throat> you know, if I edited it and there's some embarrassing stuff, I mean, you know, bear your thoughts to the world is taking a risk, but, um, you know, if I edited it, then it'd be contrived. But you, when I later talk about networks in the brain that carry out different functions, the salience network, the executive control network, the default mode network, these words don't maybe don't mean anything to you, but these yet, yeah, but these are how the brain processes different kinds of information. And that became very apparent in my internal monologue where you could see the shifting of my brain activity uh, to these different networks um, as as I'm doing the neurofeedback. But um, neurofeedback is a way that will change your brain waves. There's still the question of you know cause and effect. Is it causing the uh, the improvement in in these uh, in their uh, clients' conditions or is it cause and effect? We don't know, but it does work. <clears throat> I mean, we know that brainwaves change with alcohol and other kinds of drugs. So again, the idea is let's just change the brainwaves. 
And then, you know, there are other ways, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, beaming pulses of, of energy into the brain can change brain waves. You can make a do-it-yourself direct current stimulation to change your brain wave activity. But even flashing lights uh, or rhythmic sound will set your brain waves in sync. And this is being used uh, therapeutically. Um, flashing blue lights at the gamma wave frequency clears out beta amyloid um, in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and now we're talking about treating a neurological condition, which has no current treatment, uh, not using drugs, but by manipulating brain waves and doing it simply by flashing lights at the right frequency. So, um, yeah, the the gamma I think light. This really indicates the potential. Yeah, the the gamma light work is really, you know, it's it's taken taken the world by storm. But also, there was there's been a bit of a dip since the uh, the initial reports. But I think the the reason for that is probably because they're busy um, developing companies and IP and stuff. Um, I know there's 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 trials going on and so on. Um, so in terms of neurofeedback, though, I, there was one one aspect of that that I I was curious if you had a a particular um, insight on or reflections on coming from your your um, like primary expertise, which is cellular basis of memory, right? Um, so do you in in your kind of uh, evaluate survey of this field, like have you uh, got much of a feel of what the what the mechanisms that are underlying the basically plasticity effects, right? Um, change the changes that are um, happening as a result of this active cognitive process. What the biological basis of that is? Have, has, is there any convincing work you've seen kind of pinning that down? Well, yes. So um, um, rhythmic oscillations of the brain are very important in memory. Uh, when we study uh, cellular mechanism of memory, plasticity of synapses, uh, and we often do this by taking a slice of the brain of a, of a rat and put, keeping it alive in a dish, putting in electrodes and recording the electrical activity in those synapses. And fundamentally, a memory is strengthening a connection, and that is strengthening a synapse, which just means that now when you that synapse fires, it now produces a bigger effect than it did before. You have a stronger connection, and that's building a memory. We can do that in, in slices of brain tissue, but it turns out that you need to stimulate rhythmically at the right frequency, <clears throat> and that frequency is the theta, theta frequency. And this has to do with um, just the, the properties of resonant properties of networks and how the time course of integrating um, synaptic signals takes place over a certain number of milliseconds, and the theta waves are just matched perfectly to produce a maximum effect to strengthen that synapse. That's, that's one way that it's very uh, oscillations are important in memory. The other is what I alluded to before. People are familiar with the hippocampus is important in memory because it it is uh, you know it locates space and time and um, and the famous HM patient who had lost this part of the brain couldn't form new memories. But um, there's more to a memory than that. You know, if you walk into Starbucks, the guy next to you might be your coworker and you don't recognize him because <laughs> he's out of place. He's out of context until, you know, suddenly you put things together. But that's because 
context comes from a different part of the brain. So you have a prefrontal cortex, information in your prefrontal cortex behind your eyebrows has to somehow get linked with spatial information in the hippocampus. And um, so the way this, uh, what scientists are, are finding is that this phase coding, the oscillations coupling between the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex are a way to couple this kind of information to form a memory. So the problem here is this all makes perfect sense. There's strong evidence for this, um, but the problem, all of the evidence is correlations. Um, you know, you, you, you will correlate a, a behavior or a physiological response uh, with a certain oscillation. You know, the prefrontal cortex is correlating with the amygdala, for example, in an oscillation in a fear memory, but that's a correlation. Does that mean those are causally linked? And this is where neuroscientists are stuck because in order to break a cause, test a causation, you need to break that. You need to change, you know, the oscillation and then see that the fear memory is gone. But every way that people have come up to do that uh, leaves uncertainty because you're also changing the other aspects of, uh, you know, spike coding, for example. If you're going to change, if you're going to put in a rhythmic stimulation to change uh, a theta wave, well, you've also changed the spike uh, frequency. So at this point, there's overwhelming data supporting the idea that oscillations are critical, coupling together in a sophisticated way, um, populations of neurons to carry out higher cognitive functions and consciousness and these kinds of things, but it's all correlation. And uh, uh, that's where we're stuck. And a lot of scientists think there may be, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, so one way, maybe this is what you were leading onto, but the, uh, one way of addressing or getting towards the, the correlation issue is, is with perturbations and, and interventions, right? So I was, I was going to, uh, kind of move towards brain stimulation here. I understand that you're, you you have a slightly different point about correlation in terms of, um, therapeutic effects and so on, but, um, the, the, the question I wanted to kind of bring up here is, again, speaking to your expertise as a, as a neurophysiologist in that, um, in, in terms of this, this role of theta, um, it, as a kind of the, the magic memory frequency, um, to be a bit banal about it. So, um, w one of the, well, the perspectives that I have coming at this is as a, a, a neuroimaging um, type scientist who is doing work in brain stimulation with um, TMS, with transcranial magnetic stimulation. And there's, there's a, a flavor of um, TMS called theta burst stimulation that's been um, uh, you know, inc increasingly getting a lot of attention as the, um, a, a, a kind of recipe for inducing plasticity um, at a, using non-invasive stimulation. And the way theta burst works is you have um, a, well, you have a theta and you have a burst. So you have a, a low frequency theta oscillation. And then uh, at certain points in the oscillation, you have these bursts of gamma frequency, um, high frequency activity. And the I, so I'm, I'm familiar with this just purely from the point of view of TMS, but I know that, um, that this is something that's actually this type of mechanism as in like using theta and then coupling theta with high frequency bursts is something that um, physiologists like yourself who've been studying memory in 
um, in in vitro and and in animal preparations are pretty used to using. So I was kind of curious whether when you as a physiologist who, as I said, like probably very, pretty familiar with using theta to try and modulate synaptic plasticity, does, does that, when you see that that's being used in that way in, uh, in brain stimulation, um, is that, does that seem like, uh, is, it, is it kind of exciting or is it, you know, why, why did it take them so long? Uh, and, and does it seem like it's exactly the same type of thing that you're using in your experiments or does it maybe seem quite different? Yeah. Uh, well, I think this is the, the direction of the future. When TMS first came out, it didn't have the precision, uh, the ability to modulate it at the frequencies, the specific frequencies and to be focused on particular parts of the brain. And we're getting better and better technology. And that's what has to happen. <clears throat> and so that makes perfect sense um, to use that kind of stimulation. But the problem that you have is again, the, just this rigorous question, if you're going to be rigorous scientists and, and prove it, you know, it isn't what you believe. Science is not about belief. It's about proof. If you do a theta burst uh, TMS stimulation, are you just manipulating oscillations of brain waves or are you suppressing a whole circuit? After all, you can cause a seizure. You can, you can change excitability, you know, by uh, TMS at different frequencies from, from, Increasing just general levels of excitability, you can also depress excitability. Um, and so now you've affected the outcome, the behavior, but it doesn't mean that necessarily, uh, you know, a critical scientist would say, it doesn't mean that was because theta was important. It's just that you did theta stimulation and now you've uh, excited the circuit in an artificial way, like giving an amphetamine or something, you know. So now, that's again, this is the reason I wrote the book. Part two of the book is about this exciting question about this is the forefront of neuroscientists and how we, right now are brainwaves fundamental or are they just the noise of the brain and how we go about trying to find that answer. And it's not easy. I mean, um, you're a scientist, so you know, and it's second nature, but <clears throat> other people, you know, who are not scientists, you just read about these findings and like, you know, like they came down, Moses. Moses's laws on a tablet or something, but no, we don't know. Nobody knows. Now, so I wanted, I didn't want to give my opinion. You kind of asked for my opinion. I don't want to argue my opinion in a book. I want the reader to make their own decision, but you asked me, and I think it's fair to, fairly obvious that I, I wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to write a book on something that I thought was noise, <laughs> unimportant epiphenomenon. So, um, <clears throat> You know, I think that I think brain waves are uh, very important, fundamental to how the brain uh, processes information in sophisticated ways. <clears throat> but it is difficult to prove that right now. Do you think that that we we, I mean, in a way, we're always waiting for this. But as you said, there's been technological improvements with TMS um, in terms of certain aspects of the precision. In, in the case we were talking about just now, the the temporal precision with which you can uh, you can the, the the how fast you can give precise pulses, basically. Um, but it's still, I think most people would more or less agree, a bit of a blunt instrument. So are we are we like, waiting for some big breakthrough to really let us push forward, or or do you feel like with the with the instruments that we currently have, there's a lot of substantial incremental progress that is just a matter of 
time and putting in the putting in the effort. Yes, the methods are getting better all the all the time, and that's what we need is more precision. Um, and there are you know new methods, uh, optogenetics, who can you know at least in experimental animals control individual neuron uh, excitability and firing. Um, there is ultrasound uh, methods <clears throat> that can make neurons fire in particular frequencies. So there will be new new uh, approaches and that's what's needed. The best way we have is microelectrodes. You stick electrodes in the brain and you stimulate individual neurons or you record from individual neurons. And, you know, people are probably familiar with, you know, Elon Musk doing this. Um, and his idea is to be able to, um, increase the bandwidth to, you know, instead of having a dozen electrodes, one or a dozen or hundred, he wants to have 3000 electrodes in the brain so that he can now extract uh, or put in information into the brain uh, concept. Um, and a lot of neuroscientists are doing that. So that's a technological approach. But the biological problems need to be considered, and they're enormous. Uh, I, and people trying to do this research <clears throat> face a huge hurdle. So for example, Let's not talk about 300 neurons that you're, you're going to try and implant the image of a, I don't know, a blue square into an animal's visual cortex <clears throat> and stimulate the right 3,000 neurons. Um, the point I'm making here is that the circuitry is so intricate and so complex that the methods we have now are are just woefully inadequate, even as we're getting better and better, but the biological problem, let's not look at 300, let's look at only 300 neurons instead of 3,000, a circuit of 300 neurons. Let's simplify and say each of those neurons can be on or off. You can stimulate the, to fire or not to fire. Now that's gross oversimplification. We've talked about temporal coding, all these things, but just let's say you can have 300 neurons in a circuit on or off. Now, how many different ways can you stimulate that circuit? Well, um, that is uh, 2 to 300, um, and that is more than all the atoms in the known universe. Um, so I think the biological, uh, the biological challenges are enormous. Um, and probably when I talk to researchers who are trying to do this thing, trying to implant a blue square into a rat's brain, you know, and uh, for example, what they think is going on is, They'll never be that actually be able to do it in the way you see in Black Mirror science fiction shows. But what's probably happening is the brain, because it is so powerful and plastic, and is there to interpret uh, the environment, that it's probably perceiving this artificial input that you're putting in. You think you're putting in information to make a blue square. The brain will sense this abnormal input and then be able to learn and use it. And in fact, that's how prosthetic devices really work. Um, we don't, you know, we don't know the code to say, oh, make your uh, thumb uh, clench. We don't know that, we, you know, in, in the way that we need to, to know that to make a prosthetic device. What you have is you have a, a system of electrodes, 128 electrodes, for example, in the uh, cortex of a person who has, who is a paraplegic for, or a quadriplegic. And you record the activity in those circuits every time you ask the person uh, to, you know, imagine moving your hand this way. Imagine grasping this baseball bat. 
And in the same way, using artificial intelligence, much the same way that Amazon can predict what your next order should be, what you're interested in, the stream of data gets analyzed by the computer at the same time that the brain is through neurofeedback. This is neurofeedback because they'll, they'll say, imagine, imagine grasping a bat. And you get a reward when when your hand grasps it, you know, in, in, in your mind. And so uh, the brain modulates its activity to produce that pattern of activity. And the computer begins to learn that's this uh, that's the intention when I see this kind of activity. So um, it's a it, it, I, I just hope that, you know, you get across the fascination and the appreciation of the intricacy of of what the brain does. And our ability right now to interface, even with the most exciting things like TMS and and uh, multi-electrode arrays, we're just still uh, at very, very blunt instruments. And we need much better, much, it's a bigger challenge. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, there's, there's definitely the... The challenge is is a great one, but it's uh, it's an exciting one to be addressing, and and you really do a a great job in the book of of just surveying all of these techniques. I mean, there's so many, um, but the, the 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 landscape of how the the field is looking to um, you know tease apart the the research questions that we're we're trying to address with these um, electrical brain measurements and stimulation tools. I think. It's been an excellent conversation, Doug. I think we'll move towards wrapping up now, but I want to pose maybe one final question to you, a speculative question um, as we as we conclude. So we've we've talked about uh, a great number of things, you know, uh, rhythm, brain rhythms, methodologies for measuring brain rhythms. In the book, you talk about much more than what we've been able to cover today, but um, there's a, a wide range of technologies that are, uh, some of which have been around for over a hundred years, as we've as we have discussed, and some of which are really coming through. But do you, do you have a feel, just a personal preference or a personal inclination of where the uh, the action is, what the most exciting new technologies coming through are for kind of pushing forward the field? So yeah, if we can maybe have some just closing kind of thoughts with you on that, and then and then we'll call it a day. Sure. Well, you know, it's like anything else. There's no one technique that's good for everything. They're all they all have uh, their applications, their benefits. Um, I talk about some new ones on the horizon. I like the research being done by Thomas Oxley. I talk about that, where um, he's using a cannula that uh, surgeons, uh, you know, will stick a cannula in the femoral artery and go in. People are familiar with this for cardiac stents and put in a stent, open up the vessel. Well, neurosurgeons do the same thing. They send these things clear from your your femoral artery up into your brain to deal to deal with the stroke and i was fortunate enough to be able to go in the operating room and see this and it's just amazing what oxley realized is hey instead of just putting a mesh wire stent in there to open up the vessel what if i put electrodes in there now i can record and stimulate and i can put this thing anywhere in the brain that i can reach through the blood system which is much more than eeg which is only the cortex so i think that's very exciting but <clears throat> Speaking to your question about the future, I think all of these techniques are giving us insight. It's all important. And here's, I think, the most important thing. As we're beginning to learn how the brain works, and I talked about you know networks, and we're learning about the brain in a network level. That's something different. But as we learn how the brain works, and we can interrogate that with functional MRI or EEG or near-infrared spectroscopy, um, that 
begins to allow us to tell how good your brain is at different things. So you can measure a person's, uh, a preschool child's um, brain responses to hearing words and non-sense uh, words and predict how well that child is going to be able to read in the future. Or I went to Chantel's Pratt's lab in um, Washington, University of Washington in Seattle, and she claimed that she could uh, record my brainwaves for five minutes and then say whether or not I'd have a hard time or an easy time learning a foreign language. Um, so I went there, I did it. She recorded my brainwaves for five minutes. Then she comes out, clicks her keyboard, looks at me and says, well, it's a good thing you're an American. And, you know, it's true. I, I studied German <laughs> and, and Spanish and they just don't stick. I just, you know, but here now, how is this going to change society? How is this going to change teaching and career choices? As we learn the brain, how it works, at electrical level, same way that we learned how the heart works or we learned the biochemistry of the liver, we can now know this person's cognitive strengths and weaknesses. Um, that's a little scary to some people, but, you know, I think we just have to get used to it. We're used to it now with, you know, uh, the physical body. Uh, you know, we're not all going to be basketball stars. And, uh, you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses due to our physical body and our physiology. The same things apply to the mind. Um, that's really exciting. And so as these new techniques become developed and we get a better understanding of the brain, that is that is the big question is how we're going to apply this in a society in an ethical way and 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 deal with that and, and mind reading. I mean uh, it's possible to to uh, Marcel Just at Carnegie Mellon, I visited his lab and he he can tell what a person's reading by functional MRI analysis and predict whether that and tell whether this person has suicidal thoughts. You know so this technology that you're asking about is going to change the future. Maybe it's scary, but it shouldn't be scary. We've dealt with this in terms of, you know, genetic information. Do you want to know you have the gene for breast cancer? Well, some people do, some don't. But um, once a capability is there, it's going to be used. And um, there's nothing more private than a thought, but that's no longer private. Yeah, these are these fascinating thoughts to end on and, and um, really important questions for us all to be thinking about moving into the future. And it's definitely, you know, there's, there's, there's currents of these discussions going on in, in society at the moment, but we, we need to keep putting the questions forward and, and outlining the, the science that, that backs them up and, and that really um, underlies the substantial parts of these um, these societal discussions that we need to be having. So that's a great place to end it on, I think, um, Doug. So thanks a lot for the for the discussion. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I very much enjoyed the book. I've been talking with Douglas here about his new book, Electric Brain, for New Books in Neuroscience. Doug, thanks very much. Well, John, thank you. I, I want to say that uh, it's a pleasure uh, talking with you because uh, you, you did the homework. You obviously read the book and that comes across to readers. You know how many times I get interviewed by somebody who <laughs> hasn't actually read more than the than the cover. Um, and so I, I, I think we did a good job of, of uh, getting into the material and I, I really uh, thank you for that.